Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast. On this exciting Thursday here in the nation's capital, we are days, days away from the long-awaited Iowa caucuses. My goodness, I can't believe they're actually here. Coming up, we are going to dive right into Monday's long-awaited, much-anticipated contest, analyzing and assessing all five of the state's frontrunners, laying out where we think they stand and what's at stake for each. Every week, we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy, and today I'm joined by Emily Cadet, McClatchy's political correspondent, who I am sure is excited for the caucuses, but is maybe a little bit more excited to see the 49ers play on Sunday. Indeed. <laughs> Emily, welcome. And we are pleased to welcome back to the show Adam Walner, whose Green Bay Packers lost to the 49ers in the NFC Championship game. That's it. That's your introduction. It's basketball season, as, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I actually was hoping you would say that. And as well, you should be pleased as a Milwaukee Bucks fan, the way things are going. Okay, so as we tape this on a Thursday morning, we are a mere four days away from the Iowa caucuses. And I think we can safely say that the race is narrowed to a top five. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar. So we're going to ditch the usual format for this show and simply give you a rundown of each of the five hopefully giving you a sense of their chances and what their path is post-Iowa. And naturally, we are going to start with Bernie Sanders. When we talked to you last week on this show, we were debating whether or not Bernie's poll bump was real or not. Adam, I think that debate has been settled subsequently. Yeah, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders really has an opportunity here to to, to put himself in a, in a pretty, you know, uh, comfortable, if not, you know, dominating position here coming out of Iowa. And, and, you know, I think kind of hanging over all of this discussion today, um, things are still incredibly volatile in Iowa. And I think that the recent polls have, have pointed to that. Some polls have shown Bernie Sanders in the lead. Others have shown Joe Biden in the lead. But the the overarching, I think, takeaways from a lot of the polls is one, Bernie Sanders certainly does seem to be riding a, a wave of momentum that the other candidates aren't at this point. But two, there still are a, a huge chunk of caucus goers who are undecided or persuadable. But having said all of that, you know, if, as some of the, the more reputable polls have suggested, that Bernie Sanders can, can notch a win in Iowa on Monday, you know, that would put him on a real nice path to not only establish himself as the clear sort of progressive standard bearer in, in the race, you know, I think he really has separated himself from Elizabeth Warren in that sort of liberal lane of the primary, but he really could establish himself as, as an early front runner here after the first few contests, because if he walks away with Iowa with, with a win, you know, whether it's a narrow win or, 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 you know, by a couple points, we go right into New Hampshire, where he's always kind of held a bit of a home field advantage, one, because of his dominating performance there in 2016 and because he's the neighboring senator in Vermont. So if he wins Iowa, it, it's pretty easy to see him uh, get another win right after that in New Hampshire. It and would then, be shocking if he won Iowa and did not win New right, Hampshire. Yeah, New, yeah, by, the, win New Hampshire by a considerable margin. Yes, there is something very strange would have to happen in between there for that not to happen. So, And then all of a sudden, the race, I think, could really start to narrow if he establishes himself as, you know, as the progressive in the race, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about which moderate maybe would be able to emerge as as the alternative to him. But, but that's what that person would be, the alternative to Bernie Sanders, right? The the onus would be on, on someone else to challenge Bernie Sanders' sort of uh, claim to the throne, if you will. You know, Nevada coming up next after Iowa, New Hampshire could be favorable ground for him. It's another caucus state. 
It's a state with a considerable Latino population. That's been actually one of the more, I think, underrated strengths of his candidacy is that he's done well with, with Latino voters, particularly younger, progressive Latino voters. He could be on, on, on a pretty solid path here if he's able to walk away from Iowa with a victory. Right. And you've seen a just a, a sort of natural, <laughs> natural reaction to Bernie's rise over even really just the last week, especially where you have a lot of more establishment and moderate Democrats suddenly ringing the alarm bell as as loudly as as they can. I will say, you know, on the ground, I was in, in Iowa over the weekend and I didn't see Bernie Sanders because he was, of course, detained in Washington for the impeachment trial, uh, at least on the Friday night event. I saw it was at the University of Iowa, but Michael Moore and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were there. And I was amazed that I was actually there for three and a half hours. You get there a little early to talk to people. There were already hundreds of people who were attending and they stayed the whole three and a half hours. People didn't leave. And when you talk to Bernie supporters, and this is backed up in the polls, they're not wavering, right? right. It's really Bernie or bust in this primary. And you subsequently saw that over the weekend and some of the other events. His crowds are massive, certainly massive compared to a lot of the other candidates. Emily, it seems like that the one thing that, that is holding him back is how these caucuses are going to be run, which, of course, you have a first alignment and then you have a final alignment right. where candidates who don't cross the threshold, maybe Amy Klobuchar, maybe Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren in some places, are going to have to realign with somebody. And there was a thought that maybe those people are going to be more inclined to say go to Joe Biden or some of the other candidates than they are to Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a true just based off of what we've seen in the polling when you ask about second choices that a lot of second choice Bernie has a, a core devoted group of support but when it comes to second choice he's not as many folks second choice because those people are leaning more towards perhaps a moderate candidate, a more unifying candidate. Um, so there are some lingering questions about just how much Bernie can broaden his base. And certainly if you start to see the field narrow, um, is he just stuck at that 20-something, 30-something right. support while the, whoever becomes you know, the alternative, as, as Adam said, just starts to pick up more and more support from the people who have dropped out? That's, I think, the, the looming question for, for the Sanders campaign. But certainly when you look at the way the calendar is playing out, and Iowa in particular is being just such a focal point still for, for the media and for the campaigns. If he's able to win in Iowa, it would be difficult for someone like Elizabeth Warren or even an Amy Klobuchar to really continue mm -hmm. um, without without surprising. I mean, they the one thing that they benefit from, right, is lower expectations at this point. So Sure. Say if, for Buttigieg or Warren, we'll get into that. Yeah. But expectations yeah. Are, are fairly yeah. low at yeah. this point. Yeah. And, and I think you make a, a great point about Bernie. I think the question moving forward, you know, there's been some conversation this week about whether or not this sort of quote unquote moderate lane can get organized and just come down to one candidate, whether that's Biden or Klobuchar or Buttigieg, maybe even Warren in some ways. But if you flip that around, the onus, as you said, how quickly is Bernie Sanders going to be able to consolidate the rest of his party if he does, in fact, win Iowa and win New Hampshire? What does his ceiling look like? Or is it going to be a struggle for him to get above 20, 30 percent? in a lot of states, or even match the 40% that he got against Hillary Clinton if you aggregate all the results together. And in particular, and we've seen it again this week, when the criticism starts. We've talked yeah. about on the show, you know, he has 
kind of slipped a little bit under the radar screen, I think, just because people discounted him, you know? I mean, and, and, and that was never more true than after he had a heart attack. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing Sanders has had going for him this whole campaign is that he's had the most uh, committed and I think arguably the most enthusiastic supporters throughout this whole thing. And in a very fractured race, you know, if you have a solid 20, 25 percent, that may be all you need in a state like Iowa. But I think another interesting thing just to watch here in the final days as that the polls and sort of the media narrative has been around this Sanders surge. You know, while he does have a lot of people who really like him, he also has mm-hmm. a lot of people in Democratic Party who are really worried about him. And we've talked about how a lot of voters are almost viewing this race as more of a pundit <laughs> than, you know, maybe looking at which candidate aligns with their, you know, policy views the, the, the closest. So if there are some of these more, you know, moderate center-left Democrats who are still, you know, kind of debating between Biden or Klobuchar or Buttigieg, all of a sudden they're, they're hearing this in the final days before the caucuses that, oh, you know, Bernie Sanders is, is establishing himself as the front runner. I wonder if that will cause them to, to reconsider who they want to support and say, oh, well, Joe Biden has the clearest path to emerge right. as the alternative to Sanders. So sure. I actually want to go there. So there's just you know so many interesting, you know, sort of calculations that caucus goers will make. And then, you know, with, with the realignment on the second ballot, it's going to just be really, I think, fascinating to, to watch how this all plays out before we, Monday. We should say our colleague Dave Katniss was on the ground in New Hampshire with the Biden campaign. And actually, there was a suggestion he wrote about from the Biden folks that if Bernie does win, that there could be a backlash because very mm-hmm. much the dynamic that we described, right. people could say, oh, my goodness, he could become the nominee. And people don't always be, agree with with his views, even within the Democratic Party and their concerns about electability. So maybe that's going to be a factor to watch out. But speaking of Joe Biden, Emily, if the arrow is pointed up for Bernie Sanders, it seems to be pointed sideways for the former vice president. He's the one candidate where it seems like he's been pretty steady in Iowa this whole time. I mean, if you look, I printed out the 538 kind of graph tracking the polling over the last several months. and, And you see I think what's most important in any of these polls is less about like the actual numbers and more about the trend lines. It's pretty clear Bernie has been on an upward trend line. It's pretty clear Warren and Buttigieg have been trending downward, maybe Warren a little more than Buttigieg. But Biden's been pretty steady, which is kind of part of his whole appeal at this point (laughs) is being the steady kind of safe candidate. And while there's been concerns that he doesn't draw the crowds, he doesn't pack the big rallies with, you know, young celebrities or old celebrities in the case of Michael Moore. He does have this aura of just sort of being the safe choice. And with so many people undecided still, I think, as Adam pointed out, there there are a lot of people who may ultimately gravitate towards Biden because they just think my biggest goal is to beat Trump. He's the safest bet on that. At the end of the day, when it comes down to it, they just want to go play it safe and Biden could be the beneficiary. So from the beginning, I think we've we've talked about how his campaign has not made Iowa their primary focus, the way some candidates are really banking on Iowa. He is not. They've talked down their prospects there. New Hampshire might also be kind of tricky for him, but he knows he has South Carolina hanging out there. And he also is, is at the top of the Nevada polls. So he's got a little bit of a backstop. Right. I don't think we're going to see him, unless he does really poorly in Iowa, really see him go anywhere right away. Yeah. Well, and historically, you know, you have to win either Iowa or New Hampshire if you want to become the nominee. The last Democratic nominee who, who didn't carry one of those two states in the primary was Bill Clinton in 1992. So it's been a while. So historically, you know, you would think you'd have to win one or the other. But the Biden team has kind of been, you know, setting this expectation for a while now that he will not win Iowa or New Hampshire. And I, and can, I, can he still get away with that? I feel like he's the expectation are rising for him in Iowa. The, I think the, they the are a little of bit. campaigning Here, I, he's done. Yeah. A, a, absolutely. I, I, I actually I do think he 
he doesn't necessarily have to win Iowa or New Hampshire, but he does have to stay competitive. And I think he does have to finish first in sort of that moderate lane. He's got to beat Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar right. yeah. in Iowa. And if Bert, you know if Sanders does go on to win Iowa, he he really I don't think can be more than a couple points behind him because you know as we talked about, you know Sanders I think is going to be in a pretty good position in in New Hampshire. So if he is sort of able to come out of Iowa, New Hampshire, even if Biden doesn't have a win, he has sort of established himself as that clear moderate alternative to Bernie Sanders. You know, then he can start making up ground in states like Nevada, in South Carolina, in some of the southern states mm-hmm. that vote on Super Tuesday. I think we're all operating under the, under the assumption this is going to be a long slog. This thing's not going to be settled for a while and could go deep into March or April. And I think as long as Biden sets himself on that path after Iowa and New Hampshire, then I, th- I think that's kind of the, the bare minimum of what he needs to do now. If he does finish behind Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar in Iowa, then I think that the alarm bells are really going to start yeah. to sound for him. And if he emerges looking weak out of this, that, that's going to cause a lot of panic within mm-hmm. the Democratic establishment. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I made a point of trying to attend several Joe Biden events while I was in Iowa. And look, the crowds are not especially enthusiastic. The contrast between a rally without even Bernie Sanders, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on a Friday night and then watching some of the, the crowds that showed up for, for Joe Biden. You know, he spoke in Des Moines. It was a couple dozen people. We were crammed into a small office space, and someone there joked that there were more reporters than people from the neighborhood there. Now, he had a better event in rural Iowa a couple hours later where he had, you know, 150, 200 people. And I know that that is a big part of the Joe Biden strategy is that, again, this is not a primary. This is a caucus and that having greater support and, and having a commanding lead in some of the less populated areas can really still pay off for you when it comes to, to delegates. Here, here's what it really does rest on, Emily. I think you articulated it well. At the end, there are still so many undecided voters. They are really making an electability push. He's had, in fact, a lot of swing district congressmen from places in Texas and Iowa and suburban Philadelphia who were campaigning for him, actually saying, one one congressman, Colin Allred, actually said, if you want to win Texas, nominate Joe Biden. Probably not the case. Just FYI, (laughs) Joe Biden would not be able to win Texas. Really, no candidate would in all likelihood in 2020. But Look, that is the the argument, and I do think there is still some resonance. If you look at the polls, people still see him as the most electable, and the Biden campaign will tell you that soft supporters of people like Klobuchar, Buttigieg, or Warren also still see Joe Biden as the most electable, and that maybe there will be some late movement toward him. But look, you know, it is. Um, it, 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 I don't want to say it's a perilous time for the vice president's campaign, but it's not hard to imagine it going in either direction yeah. after this. And, 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 and this I think, point. and also just quickly, I think the fact that there has been so much scrutiny being placed on Iowa and New Hampshire's role in this nominating process could work to Biden's favor as well. These have been criticisms that have been made for election cycle after election cycle, but I feel like it's really come to a head this year. It's like, why are these two very white states, you know, kind of able to set the, the tone for the rest of the primary? Where Joe Biden, as you said, he's really making that electability case. And I think he can point to, he's like, yeah, you know, I wasn't able to win these really white states of Iowa, New Hampshire, but wait until we get to Nevada when Latino voters cast ballots or when we get to South Carolina when, you know, the majority of the electorate is is black. And that's really where a lot of Biden's strength lies. And he can point to the coalition that he can bring together, black voters, Latino voters, even in New Hampshire. You know, Dave reported a story this week that he's actually trying to get independents and even Republican leaning voters to come and cast ballots for him since they have an open primary. Any voter can participate. So I think in, in that sense, I think Biden could make that argument and it would be accepted by a lot of Democrats that, hey, just because, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire maybe went for Bernie Sanders doesn't mean that's the direction everybody else has to go in. OK, well, Biden and Bernie are the clear front runners in Iowa and nationally at this point. Where does Mayor Pete stand? 
at him because he is someone who at one point certainly looked like the front runner in Iowa. Polls show that he has sagged back a little bit, but I wonder if we're underrating him at least a little or overlooking him at least a little. What do you think? Yeah, you know, to kind of be a classic sports uh, analyst here, he may have peaked a little too early in, mm-hmm. in, in Iowa. You know, I you know th- there was a point you know a couple months ago where it looked like he he was the kind of emerging as the favorite to to win that state. Is he not playing his best ball <laughs> for a playoff start here? I mean, he is not, and you know you know you can look at the stories that came out about some of the internal conflict in his campaign this week in the New York Times yeah. and the Wall Street Journal. Those aren't the types of stories that are usually coming out about someone who's on his way to Just win quickly the summarize, Iowa caucuses. What was it? Because there were remarkable stories this close to a caucus. Right. So, you know, so of course there have been questions this whole campaign about Buttigieg and his, you know, kind of relationship with with non-white voters. But that's even has extended to his staff. A lot of the, the staffers of color on his campaign feel like they weren't playing a large enough role or won't, weren't being heard in his campaign. So it just kind of speaks to those concerns that Buttigieg really, you know, he has kind of his base of white, sort of more affluent Democrats, but hasn't really been able to go beyond that, both in terms of the electorate and also in, in his within his campaign, as, as as that was alleged in some of the stories that came out this week. But you know, I think it's you know kind of the other side of the coin for for, for Biden here for Buttigieg is that you know he's competing in sort of that more moderate lane. So I think if he doesn't win Iowa, he, he's got to finish ahead of Joe Biden or Amy Klobuchar to really be able to make that case that he should you know continue deep into this race. Because I think we're all expecting it to be. I think we're expecting everyone to be relatively bunched up. You know, no one's gonna you know walk away. If someone even comes away with more than thirty percent of the vote at this point, I think we might be surprised by that. So I don't think it's really going to winnow the field all that much. I think all of these major contenders we're talking about today are, are going to at least go on to New Hampshire. But I think for Buttigieg, in order to try and consolidate that. Uh, kind of wing of the party, he he has to at least finish ahead of Joe Biden and show that he can go toe to toe with whoever emerges from the the progressive wing, which is looking increasingly like Bernie Sanders. Emily, I mean, it seems like his his message is something of a hybrid because he talks yeah. about wanting to bring change to Washington by bringing everyone together. Yeah, and at the same time, approach. he's electable and yeah. he's from the Midwest and. Yeah. Where, where, where does he kind of fit into this this field? He's walking a little bit of a tightrope trying to, I think, very strategically appeal to different pockets of the Democratic voter base. And that might be what's been troubling him is that he's not doing enough to really, like, develop his own really rabid base the way Bernie has. I think in the beginning it seemed like he might be leaning on a more progressive path but then he kind of tacked a little bit more to the center with healthcare and some of his other proposals. And, you know, I think the biggest thing Pete has going for him is that he's young. He's a fresh face for those people in the party who are looking and seeing we have a bunch of 70 plus politicians who've been around forever running. It's refreshing. He's thoughtful. He's he's openly gay. He fought in Afghanistan. He has all these these very interesting, tantalizing parts of his biography on the flip side. He's only 38 years old, and so I think people worry that he just doesn't have the experience, and I I think he's struggled to rationalize why a mayor of South Bend, Indiana, can and should be the next president of the United States. So Yeah, I mean, you know, if he doesn't win or, you know— post a pretty competitive finish in Iowa, I think the question becomes, like, if, you know, if he can't win Iowa, where can he win, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially right. as we talked about, he hasn't been able to expand his base beyond, you know, sort of those white, college-educated, uh, more affluent voters that are very prevalent in states like Iowa and then New Hampshire. So, you know, if he can't win in those two states, why do we think he could somehow expand his coalition yeah. to win in states like Nevada and South Carolina? I mean, Carolina he's explicitly said, too, right, if I start winning, then I can start pulling in more voters of color from South Carolina, from Nevada. They need to see that I am viable to be able to win them over because I'm so new to the scene. So I think that puts a lot of pressure on his performance in Iowa because he, unlike 
Biden does not have that backstop in mm-hmm. South Carolina and Nevada. Speaking of candidates trying to be the unity candidate mm. in this race, Emily, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Uh, another candidate who, in sports parlance, might have peaked too soon in the fall. And we spent a lot of time on the show talking about the, the, the quote-unquote feud between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. We actually were just talking before the show. At the time, we weren't sure who was going to come out the winner of that. In retrospect, it seems like it was Bernie Sanders. He seemed to be pulling over some of her supporters. Yeah. Where, where does she stand in, in all this four days out? I think she's trying to stay alive right now. She has to outperform expectations in Iowa. I mean, on the one hand, there's some benefit to being counted out a little bit because if she comes in a strong second or even a strong third or it's really bunched at the top, that would be, for her, sort of a rebound after what's been kind of a tough month, at least in the polls. She has been trying to make this very concerted argument now about about gender and, and women's electability and Think really was a bold, yeah, yeah right. like a bold move on her part to to take head on something that's been a kind of a lingering concern about her candidacy, but it seems like it hasn't been convincing too many voters. And then I I think that in her conflicts with Bernie, even though they sort of tamped them down, that seemed to turn off some of the people on the left that really could have gone either way between her and Bernie. So it's interesting if you look at some some polls ask questions about you know their second choice. She wins. She would be acceptable to the broadest number of voters in a lot of these polls. So people on the right and the left would consider her acceptable in a way that few other candidates can can say. And, and in that sense, she could be a unity mm-hmm. candidate. The problem with trying to be everything to everyone <laughs> is that you are no one's first choice, which is in a place like Iowa, right. potentially deadly. You know, you know if, if she's kind of the latest candidate that's trying to, to kind of walk that yeah. tight rope between Biden that and Sanders, you know, it else. hasn't worked for anybody else yet. Now, you know, not to completely, you know, write off her chances or anything in Iowa here, because I do think there is something to be said for being, you know, the most prominent, I think, uh, woman that's still yeah. left in, in in the race. You know, I think there still is, you know, that still is a, a, a sentiment that's widely held within the party that they want to, you know, elevate a woman and, you know, kind of finally break that, that glass ceiling. Some, that some parts Clinton. of the party. Some, some parts. parts no, some parts. Part. Yeah, yeah right. absolutely. So I don't think that can be discounted. And as you guys discussed last week and Dave wrote about, she has a very well-regarded ground game yes. in, in Iowa. Um, you know, in, in, a, in a caucus state, you certainly can't discount that either. I had someone in an Iowa Democrat just this morning reiterate that she has, in her, this person's view, the far and away the best ground. But, but, I do, but, but, but ultimately, I do think she does kind of risk being the latest candidate without a home here as Bernie Sanders is really consolidating that very liberal part of, of the party. Joe Biden moves to consolidate the, the more moderate voters that are concerned about electability. You know, she can try and peel off as many as she can of voters from kind of both of those camps, but does that ultimately leave her with with enough to, you know, to, to win Iowa or even post a, you know, a, a top two or three finish? That remains to be seen. But I think, you know, she's also in a similar boat where, you know, if she isn't able to come out of Iowa or New Hampshire w- with a win, I think, you know, there are going to be even more serious questions about where she can win. And, and of course, though, her campaign has telegraphed very explicitly that they're not getting out of this race yeah. anytime soon, that there are already have staffers in place in Super Tuesday states. And beyond. And, and beyond. They just opened offices in Oregon, which votes in May. So they're very much playing the long game. And I think that their organization outdoes any other organization of any other campaign that she can really lean on that. And she did receive a boost over the weekend in Iowa, the Des Moines Register 
endorsed her. I don't even think that was really the expectation of who the register was going to endorse. I think there was a lot of speculation about Amy Klobuchar. A, a good moment for a campaign that needed some good news. Let's talk about Amy Klobuchar. I can say talking with voters, she is very much in the conversation Mm -hmm. in Iowa among undecided voters and even voters who are starting to zero in on a particular candidate but are still maybe kind of sort of considering Amy Klobuchar as part of this. Is she is she peaking at the right time or is she peaking late in this race? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it, because she is rising in, in the polls, notably. But I think she's maxed out at 10 percent in, mm-hmm. in that Monmouth poll, which, you know, that's that's significant. But the problem for her is that that still puts her in fifth place in double digits. So I think Klobuchar, more than any of these candidates, it's Iowa or, or bust. And it's always been that way for, for her campaign, being being the neighboring senator from Minnesota. She's you know poured a lot of her time and resources into this state. And so, again, you know, I think maybe even more so than than Biden or Buttigieg, not only does she have to finish ahead of those two to, to be sort of the, the moderate standard bearer, if she doesn't win Iowa or at least, you know, get, I mean, maybe get within like a point of, of the winner. I think it's really tough to see a path forward for her. Um, you know, a lot of credit to her campaign. You know, she was languishing in, in the low single digits for most of 2019, but they, you know, stuck with it, main, remained committed to Iowa does appear to be paying some dividends late, very much in the conversation. But again, I think as voters just are starting to make these calculations still about, you know, who can win, if they're concerned about Bernie Sanders, who who's the best to match up with him, Klobuchar would have to be a little worried that she still is maybe, you know, the second or third choice for, you know, people who are maybe, you know, looking at, at, at a Joe Biden or a Pete Buttigieg. I mean, she did when the union leader endorsement in, mm-hmm. in New Hampshire has really actually received a kind of late surge of endorsements from a lot of yeah, newspaper I mean, editorial co-endorsed boards. by the New York Times. Right. I mean, now I'm not sure exactly how much that what that right. means for, for a candidate. I would argue no, not much. <laughs> no, no offense to the editorial boards at the uh, McClatchy Network of Newspapers. But, you know, my question is, is she poised to play spoiler a little bit with some of these candidates because you know, we've talked about the sort of fickle college-educated white voters who have bounced from candidate to candidate to candidate before. If you look at some of the polls released this week, some of them seem to start to be moving to her, and that's not good news for someone like Pete Buttigieg or possibly Elizabeth Warren yeah. in this race. On the other hand, she could also be a kingmaker because, as we talked mm-hmm. about in the caucuses, they need to meet that 15% threshold. And so if she's just under that in some of these caucus locations, her people could be sort of the determining factor in who ends up cleaning up in a given caucus site. So Klobuchar may not finish at the top of Iowa, but she is going to be an important player in how the results shake out. And I think we don't know entirely. Again, because so many people are deciding very late in this race, they're kind of overwhelmed by all their choices still, just how big a factor she's going to be. It seems like, I mean, some of the takeaway is almost regardless of what happens in Iowa, and Dave wrote about this, it doesn't seem like, is anybody going to get out of the race after Mm. Iowa? I mean, is there going to be a single candidate? It doesn't appear that any of the top candidates, barring something truly unforeseen, are going to leave this campaign anytime soon. And so this clarity that we've all been looking for and hoping for in this Democratic primary, maybe we're going to have to wait a little bit longer. At least through February. (laughs) And and as much as we're talking about how, you know, Bernie Sanders seems to be riding a late wave of momentum, even if, you know, if let's say he does, you know, technically win with 27 percent of the vote, but second place is, you know, 25 percent, you know, there still is a very real possibility that there just isn't a clear winner out of this. And and we've talked about how there's going to be the, the results from the first alignment of the caucus, then the, the realignment, and then the delegate totals. There's going to be ample opportunities for multiple campaigns to declare victory out of this thing on Monday and have, I think, you know, legitimate reasoning why they should continue on to New Hampshire and beyond. 
Okay, let us turn to my favorite segment every week where Adam and Emily are going to tell me something interesting or noteworthy out of their notebook. Adam, you're up first. Well, I want to put in a plug for our uh, colleague Alex Dougherty. He is the Washington correspondent for the Miami Herald. Had an interesting report this week. So we've talked a lot about Michael Bloomberg's big TV mm-hmm. ad spending spree. He's uh, certainly looming over the contest Monday in, in Iowa, even though he is not participating. He's not really going to get involved in this thing in earnest until Super Tuesday. But it turns out he's not just spending ads in the 50 states. He is going into Puerto Rico as well. Uh, he's the only Democratic presidential candidate, uh, I think presidential candidate of any party who's who's yeah. running ads there right now. And this is notable because while Puerto Rico does not have a role in the general election, they very much have one in the Democratic primary. They vote at the end of March. They have 51 delegates at place. So this is kind of part of Bloomberg's just sort of long-term delegate play. But also, I think, in another way, uh, a play for for Florida as well. A lot of uh, Puerto Ricans in Florida who will be key in their uh, mid-March primary as well as the general election. And, and we know that Bloomberg is also – he seems to be just as as, as much focused on, on the general election as he is yeah. the primary at this point. Just, you know, it's very interesting to see this almost like parallel campaign that Michael Bloomberg is running right now as all of his uh, competitors are, are focused on Iowa. Bloomberg looms over all of this. Emily, what do you got? So I was actually going to mention the the Puerto Rico ad campaign as well, but oh. <laughs> I thought of something you need different. Coordinate. Should have coordinated. <laughs> really need to coordinate on this show. Uh, it's just that interesting. But I also think there was a story out of the Sacramento Bee this week from our colleague Brian Anderson, and it pointed out something that I think is sort of an undercurrent of this whole campaign and, and the ways disinformation is spreading because it's not just Russia anymore. And in this case, it was a, a Bernie Sanders supporter who was spreading this concern online that went viral that somehow the, the California Secretary of State and the, the elections board were discriminating against Bernie because he was at the bottom of the ballot. And Bloomberg and Steyer were at the top, so sort of suggesting that the billionaires w- were able to buy the top spots on the ballot and that would disadvantage Bernie. The reality is, as Brian pointed out, is that this is all done through a random draw and they rotate. So in every assembly district, there's going to be a different ballot order for the presidential candidates. But it took the Secretary of State's office to to speak out and explain that and clarify. And who knows how many people actually saw the clarification, but are assuming, again, this same concern about, you know, this this election being rigged against Bernie or another progressive candidate. And I think it's something that that bears watching because they're not necessarily doing it out of any malevolence. It's, It's more that it's easy to to believe in these conspiracy theories and spread them without actually intending to do harm. Fascinating stuff. Okay, mine is talking with some Iowa Democratic operatives, longtime operatives in the state. We have heard a lot about this sort of anxiety of whether or not Iowa can retain its place at the top of the nominating contest because it is such a white state and no longer representative of the Democratic Party, the Democratic electorate as a whole. And while that fear remains, Heard something else from people that they are really worried that this caucus night is going to look like a mess, both on social media and, frankly, on TV. person I talked with uh, really actually made a point. I had thought, you know, look, everyone has a camera now. And the fact is the caucus system is really messy. It is completely almost everybody else in the country. Mm -hmm. In fact, having people try to explain it to me, allegedly a veteran, (laughs) sophisticated political reporter. Allegedly. Allegedly. uh, (laughs) It still seems very strange. And that when this footage gets out, when these stories and anecdotes get out, that that as much as anything else is going to contribute to a feeling after the caucuses that 
these are the last Iowa caucuses, that people are, there's going to be a real push to try to change. We've, and we've already talked about the three different results coming out. I could see every one of the leading campaigns declaring themselves a victor in some form or fashion after this. Bottom line, prepare maybe for a, a messy Monday night, but maybe take in the Iowa caucuses, maybe, for the last time. I did have one bonus. Ooh. Uh, yeah, bonus. All right. Because I learned this, and I thought it was uh, actually kind of funny. I was in the Scott County uh, Democratic Dinner Saturday night in Iowa. That's near the Quad Cities. And you heard mm. Amy Klobuchar during her speech mention the five cities in the Quad Cities. And I thought, oh, what a gaffe. Turns out, no, there are five <laughs> cities in the Quad Cities. I'm going to list them out here. I not, yeah, I did not <laughs> know this. Bettendorf, Rock Island, Moline, East Moline, and Davenport. So, you know. East Moline and Moline. That's what would throw people off. Yeah, you know, some of the reporters yeah. and I were talking amongst ourselves, and there was some kind of like East Moline or something grew in the last several decades, okay. and so I they see. decided to make it its own city, hence the name Quad Cities when there are, in fact, five cities. This is the reason you tune into this podcast, right. the people. The more you know. The more you know. Okay. I want to thank Adam and Emily for coming on the show, as always. The next time we talk to you, we'll have actual results Hooray. to discuss right. on Thursday and another primary just around the corner in New Hampshire. Exciting. Okay. I want to give our thanks to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.